week. Uh, this week, I want to pick your brain a little bit as we get started and get you thinking a little bit because I've had a couple of very full weeks, a lot of different things that I've had to prepare for, um, things that you would have to prioritize in terms of getting things done. Um, getting things done in an efficient and timely manner can usually be a struggle depending on how much you have on your workload. Um, and, and you know, I think that we've all faced times like that where we have to buckle down and just get things done and be able to then prioritize and say, okay, let's push this off to another time or let's not take this phone call because I need to stay focused on what I'm doing. And again, I think most of us have experienced that type of different stress whether that's with home projects or home life, whether that's in school, whether that's with your job, different relationships. And what I would like to, to pick your brain about this morning is how do you prioritize things in your life? What takes precedence as being important? Now, at first, this is just a, a general question. I'm going to refine that a little bit because when I ask that question, you can pretty easily think, okay, well, what needs to be done first? What's the first thing that's due? Let me just work on that, get that knocked out, and move on to the next thing. And that's kind of how we approach life in a lot of ways. But you know, there never seems to be enough time in the day. Emergencies come in, throw wrenches in the work, another stack of papers come flopping on your desk right when you finish that last one. It's like your boss just knows exactly when to overload you. You know, these types of things continually come in. And as you're going through those things, how do you prioritize? How does being a Christian help you prioritize? Does it impact how you prioritize or what you deem important? Because especially in the last few weeks, what usually happens to me is when I'm overloaded with these types of things, I'm flying through, I'm always doing the next thing, and what happens is my spiritual life or my walk suffers because there just tends to be not enough time. I'm too focused on the busyness of life, and God kind of gets what's left. So as we dive a little bit deeper with that question, when we look at how we're swamped, when we look at the, the endless list of things that need to be done, how do you set things in priority from a Christian standpoint that puts God first in your life? To the point where the things that happen to you in a day-to-day -day struggle are not influencing your walk. Your faith is not suffering because of that. Where busyness might be running the show and getting the priority rather than God. You know, and as everything, as we've been talking about our walks over the past few years, as with everything with that, I think there's ebbs and flows in the seasons that we have, where some seasons we're doing really good and we're prioritizing things well, and other seasons where we're just flopping like a fish on the shore, just trying to, to find some water to breathe. You know, when we think about those types of things in our life, I think that the more honest conversations that we can have with one another allows us to sharpen each other. Conversations not in a way to compare or judge or to say, well, at least I'm better than that person because they're really messed up right now. But in a way that can sharpen one another. Maybe you can pick up rhythms. Maybe you can pick up habits that can impact your life as well. 
you know, as we've been talking about receiving that discipleship from one another. Because in this life, you're gonna face struggles. You're gonna face temptations, whether that's in the daily struggles with sin or whether that's just the pressure is too much, I'm just ready to give up and walk away. You know, in, in both of those instances, our answer is found in Scripture in terms of putting on the armor of God daily and walking in that. Today, what we're going to talk about is a priority that Paul emphasizes. And we're going to look at how Christ is the fullness of God in redemption. So if you have your Bibles, open to chapter 1 in Colossians. We're going to read verses 18 to 23, and we're going to see how Paul is teaching the Colossians to fall back on this truth in times of wandering. So if you have your Bibles open, I invite you to stand with me as you're able as we read verses 18 through 23. Beginning in verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on the earth or in the heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Father, as we go to your word this morning, I just pray that you would open up our hearts and minds, that you would help us in our times of struggle to make you priority. In your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. All right, so we're going to kind of combine a little bit of what we talked about last week with this week as it's kind of a familiar section in chapter 1 there, verses 15 through 20 is usually what's known as the Christ hymn. This is a very powerful statement about the person and work of Jesus. Uh, his supremacy is seen with almost every single phrase within those verses. Uh, in the first portion, what we talked about last week, we talked about his preeminent role in creation. And the second emphasis is his work as redeemer. Now to any of us that might be confused at times about who Jesus is, this is a wonderful passage to kind of sit with, to kind of study to learn a little bit more about who he is, what he has done. Um, it, sh it shows his absolute authority, authority that's not shared with any other being in heaven or on the earth. And as we trace back through those verses, if you recall last week we talked about how he is seen as the in image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation, the originator, the agent, the antecedent, and the sustainer of creation. And today we're going to see how he is described as the head of the church, uh, the firstborn of the dead, the preeminent one, the fullness of God, the reconciler of all things to himself, and the maker of peace. These, these types of things, again, explaining redemption. 
This whole section is very powerful in terms of who the person of Christ is and what he has done for us. And we want to be able to worship him and see that within this passage. And as we continue to talk about how he is the fullness of God, we're going to look at that, what that means in terms of redemption today. Even though we break up these phrases, even though we dive deeper into these terms and these words, um, we're going to see redemption along with that. Um, it's going to be, again, it's going to be more heavy, heavier on teaching today as we kind of walk through this. Um, but if you recall, we defined redemption a couple of weeks ago. But if your memory's like mine, let me remind you. Redemption, according to Webster in the 1800s, is the repurchase of captured goods or prisoners, the act of procuring the deliverance of persons or things from the possession and power of captors by payment of equivalent, an equivalent. Theologically, it is the purchase of God's favor by the death and suffering of Christ, the ransom or deliverance of sinners from the bondage of sin and the penalties of God's violated law by the atonement of Christ. So with him being the fullness of God in redemption, this brings us in more of an appreciation for what he has done. And this is kind of what Paul is describing in these verses. So let's look at verse 18 together. As you look at verse 18 in the beginning, it says that he is the head of the body, the church. Now, there's a couple other places in the Bible where Paul talks about the church as a body. You look at 1 Corinthians 12, you look at Romans 12. We covered both of those uh, passages as we talked about the spiritual gifts. Um, those, those areas deal more with unity and diversity within the church body. Here, as he is using... Um, the body to describe Jesus as being the head of the body, it is talking more towards his authority. Again, keeping into this theme with the sovereignty of Christ when it comes to the church. The term head here gives us this picture that he has authority, that he has direction, that he is supreme and above all. And when you go into the next phrase, you see that he is the head of the church because he is the firstborn from the dead. Now, as we discussed last week with this term firstborn, it's not order that's being talked about because he is not the first one to have died. He is not the first one to be raised from the dead. Jesus raised a few people from the dead. There was people that were raised from the dead in the Old Testament as well. So what this, again, points back to is his preeminence, his sovereignty, his being above all things. And he is the beginning of the church because he has established it in his power, in his authority. He became these things at the resurrection because he is the firstborn of the dead. Now the, the purpose for Christ's preeminence is because of the reconciliation that is made through his redemptive work. When we look at verses 19 through 23, we see Paul is giving the reasons that everything prior that he had just mentioned beginning in verse 15, everything is an explanation of his supremacy based on what he has accomplished. Um, he, it's an explanation uh, of his death, his resurrection. And we see that through his work, we see God's ultimate purpose is to reconcile all things unto himself. This reconciliation is made possible by Christ's shedding of his blood on the cross. It's not done in human will, it's not done in human power, but rather it's done because God sent his son to do this work. His son being a part of the Godhead, the Trinity, that we talked about last week. Now, to reconcile means to conciliate anew. 
I'm sure you all know what conciliate means, right? So continuing on, it, it is to call back into union or friendship the affections which have been alienated, to restore friendship or favor after estrangement. You know, God's desire as he is pleased to dwell in the Son is to reconcile all things to himself, to restore that relationship. Now those are kind of the primary definitions uh, we also want to understand that there's other meanings or, un or understandings in terms of to settle or to resolve something. And that'll come into play here in a moment. Because as we understand that reconciliation is made through Christ, in what sense does it mean that all things are reconciled into himself? You know, is this perhaps a universalist type of teaching? Does he reconcile Satan and the demons to himself as well. Well, not in the sense of salvation, but rather in bringing them into the subjection of his will. If you look down into chapter 2, verse 15, it says that he has disarmed the rulers and the authorities by putting them to open shame, by triumphing over them in him. You see, when it comes to salvation and reconciliation, it's not a universalist type of teaching, meaning not everyone is saved just because God says everything is reconciled unto himself. Things are resolved as well. Paul would tell the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5.20, we implore you, so strong urging, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. See, the thing is, God provides the provision of atonement and reconciliation through Christ's redeeming act, and that is to be received through faith in Jesus Christ. Reconciliation is manward from God. It is not Godward in its direction. It is God's reconciling of man unto himself. He has no need to be reconciled unto man. He's always loved us. He's desired that none should perish, but all come to salvation, all come to everlasting life. And salvation is offered through the gospel message in terms of what Jesus has done on the cross. Jesus made peace between God and us by his blood. That is how he redeemed us. We simply believe and have faith that that is what he said is true. That in terms of what he has done, and we are now reconciled to the Father. As we continue in the next verse in 21, he gets very direct in his approach. He gets very personal. He says, and you who were once alienated. He's speaking directly to them in order to solidify even more what Christ has done for them. You know, it's one thing to speak of the truths in scriptures in a very general way, um, but it's completely different to boldly speak the message to the person to make it personal. You know, I try not to be very specific in my messages when it comes to sin. I try to be general. I try to give some generalities and allow the spirit to work in your hearts and minds so as not to, you know, call someone out by name or call out a, a personal confidence or a sin struggle. Even though one of my favorite t-shirts does say, Pastor Warning, anything that you say or do can be used in a sermon illustration. Always be aware of that. Always be mindful of that. But I tried, I tried to keep it more general 
while pushing you to examine your own hearts and allowing the spirit to illuminate those things that maybe you need to repent of in your life. Um, examining allows that spirit to convict. It also allows us to remember what you have personally been saved from and what you've been saved unto. What Paul's doing here is he is grounding the reader even more in the truth in order to combat false teaching. Because if they're grounded in the truth, it's less likely that they will be led astray. When we, let's reread 21 and 22 together. <clears throat> it says, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So there's a lot that's happening in these two verses. So even though he is giving them the truth, even though he is continuing to, to ground them in that truth, he's also speaking against a lie that would be going around at this time. And this lie was called docetism. Um, it's something that was firmly uh, rejected at the Council of Nicaea in 325. It's something that lines up with what the Gnostics would, would take on as well. And what a docetist would say is that Jesus only appeared to have a physical body, but he did not have a, a genuine body in the flesh. Okay? It's a heresy that started around 60 to 62 AD. Colossians was written right around that time, so it's a good chance that Paul is responding to these teachings that are coming in. And here's the reasoning of how they viewed this, to say that it only appeared that Jesus had a physical body. See, they based the view that the physical flesh is inherently wicked and evil. This lines up with the Gnostic belief that all matter is evil. Spirit was good, spiritual side was good, and God is spirit, as John 4.24 tells us. So therefore, since God is good, God is spirit, Jesus too had to be spirit and not in the flesh, which was wicked, tainted, and evil. That is their reasoning. But as Paul is stressing here, you can see how he's writing it very purposely. He stresses that reconciliation and peace with God happen for us because of the death that Jesus suffered in the flesh. He says that on purpose to combat this type of teaching. You know, we who were hostile in mind, who are doing evil deeds, who are separated from the Father, have peace with God because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. It is real, it is tangible, it was in the flesh. It was a hope that they could hold on to and believe. And what Jesus did was done in order to present us holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. Holy is to be set apart from sin. Blameless is to be without blemish, stain, or defect. Beyond reproach means totally without grounds for criticism. Now you can look at those three terms and you can look at your own life and think, all right, there's no way that I line up with that. So how do I understand this? You know, Paul is not talking about your conduct, your actions, or your behavior. 
Yes, we strive to do those things out of obedience to the word of God, but not as a means to save ourselves or not as a means to present ourselves before the Father. If you're looking at these things, at these terms, in that way, then you're doing it from a legalistic standpoint. You're doing it from a man-centered standpoint. What he is talking about here, instead of your actions and your behaviors, is your position in Christ. Because of what he did. You know, remember the phrase, remember the first message when we started opening up this, this book. In, in verse 2, where it says, To the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ in, at Colossae. You know, this phrase of in him is very important for us to understand because it reminds us of who he is talking to, those who are in Christ. If you're looking at these terms as a way to be saved, obviously we're going to fall short. But what Paul is talking about, what he is stressing here is that in him, we wear his righteousness. In him, there is no longer any condemnation. You think of Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, if we're caught trying to, for a season, trying to better ourselves with these things, trying to be holy, trying to do all of these things in our own power, then we're going to be acting like the Judaizers, the Pharisees, or the legalists who thought that you can attain salvation by your own effort, by your own works. And if you messed up, well, there was a purification ritual for that. There was a, there was a sacrifice that could be made on your behalf. And when we get into that mode of thinking that we're trying to better ourselves out of a sense of making it into our own power, then we're neglecting the sacrifice that has already been made for us on behalf of Christ. We're belittling the redeeming act that he has made once and for all, and we're trying to add our own good works into salvation, our own versions of what holiness means in terms of what Christ has already done for us. And that's a wrong teaching. It's something that we have to be on guard against in our own lives frequently. And what, this, what he's doing here kind of flows into verse 23 where his emphasis is on faith rather than on works. So when you look at verse 23, the word if is there. It's always a fun word. I always love the word if. But this if is more of a it's, a, it's a condition that Paul assumes true for the reality that they're experiencing. It's known as a first class condition in the Greek. It can also be translated as since. Paul is assuming that his readers would do what he described because the perseverance is normal for genuine believers. You know, you think of Philippians 1.6 where he says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Right? Christ has done that work. You continue to have faith. However, what we see in this verse is that the perseverance in faith is not inevitable for believers. It is not this automatic thing. And that might ruffle some feathers if I just left it there. You know, Paul, in almost every single one of his letters, describes this thing called apostasy, a departure from a previously held position. And he describes it as a very real possibility, and he alludes to it here, and he says it a lot more explicitly in other areas. 
First Timothy chapter four, verses one through three say this. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciousnesses are seared, who's, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving and by those who believe and know the truth. You know, when you, when you look at that, to depart from the faith means that you had to be in the faith. Where it's necessary for us as believers to abide, to remain in the faith. You know, if we are able to do that, we get a good report at the judgment seat of Christ where we hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. And this is, this is Paul's concern for the reader. Like this, this if contemplates a reality. The reality is that they will remain what they have been made as they continue to walk in that. At the same time, this if convicts them to examine and watch themselves closely. Paul frequently warns his readers about falling away and to examine themselves. It's not meant to be a lip service. It's not meant to have no teeth. If it was, why do we examine, why do we say examine yourselves before we take communion? If it doesn't really mean anything. You know, sometimes we can take our assurance of salvation to think that we can just go do whatever we want now and live however we want. And that's a wrong attitude and mentality to have. On the flip side of that, we can see these warnings in Scripture and we can use them to be a fear-inducing tool to check everyone else's salvation, but maybe not our own. Oh, they did that? Well, they must not be saved. Again, overlooking our own. The point of examining ourselves is to examine ourselves, to see how we are walking with the Father. And these warnings that he gives implores the reader to examine their hearts, to walk in a way that is worthy of the grace that they have received. We have to remember, again, who he is writing these letters to. He's, address, he's addressing different issues that are going on in the church. He is writing to believers. There are false teachers who are coming in to infiltrate the believers' minds, the disciples of Jesus' minds. Remember how he addresses the Galatians. Oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you to believe another gospel? He's not casting them off. He's not saying, depart from me. Instead, he is calling them back with the truth with the hope that they have in the gospel message. Focusing their hearts on the redemption of Christ. Calling them out when they're not walking in a way that is proper. Again, go back up to verses 9 and 10 in chapter 1. And, from, and so from this day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Again, this is his prayer. This is his heart for these people. As they are going through these temptations, as they are going through these teachings, they are trying to rip apart their priorities of the redemption of Christ to infiltrate with these other false teachings. You know, as you, as you continue to read the rest of verse 23, you see this, 
another familiar and consistent theme that Paul has in terms of, you know, he's always relating the church to a body or to a building or to a structure where the foundation is firmly set with the gospel message that's shared by the apostles and the prophets. We see a parallel to this in Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 23, where Paul tells them, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You know, he, he sees them again as a building, having a strong foundation in the gospel message. That is their priority. He also sees them as being steadfastly rigid, not blown off of their base by the winds of false doctrine. In Ephesians 4, 14 through 16, <clears throat> so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, making the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. See, there's a lot of parallels, as I had mentioned before, in the book of Ephesians. And if you're kind of studying the book of Colossians, if you're doing a slow reading through with me as we're going through this book, I encourage you to, to also read Ephesians. Of the 95, 96 verses in Colossians, it said that 85 of them have a base or have a connection to the book of Ephesians. So it might be a fun exercise just to go through Ephesians like, okay, this is where this lines up in Colossians. And you start writing those lists down and you start seeing the connections and the consistency in Paul's teachings to the churches. You know, his prayer, his charge is for them not to be shifting from the hope of the gospel message towards something else, whatever that might be. He's addressing these readers to remain as seated firmly uh, on the hope of the gospel as God is on the throne. You know, the gospel that professes the redemption of our souls paid for by the price of the blood of Christ. You know, as we look at this Christ hymn and we look at G who Jesus is, we are able to see how Jesus is the fullness of God and that through him, God has reconciled all things unto himself and that we who were once hostile in mind to God are now reconciled to him and we have peace with God where we abide in that grace through faith until he comes again or until he calls us home. But you know, as we go by, as we go through our day-to-day -day stuff, there is going to be a lot of temptations. There are going to be a lot of outside voices that come in and try to bewitch us, to try to pull us away from the truth and hope of the gospel message. But it is that truth that must remain central in our faith. There could be many side issues that distract there are gonna be many things that take us away from kingdom work. Some of them are necessary to deal with, but we need to acknowledge how distracting the enemy can be in our lives, especially as we're making strides to advance the kingdom forward. Over the last six years, there have been many times that I have tried to advance, expand the vision and the mission of this church, only to be sidelined with cancer diagnoses with every one of our elders' wives. 
You know, 10% of our congregation has gotten some form of cancer in the last five years. We've had deployments to other parts of the country for 30, 60, 90 days. We've had COVID happen. We've had issues with the denomination. The enemy is great at taking our focus off of what it needs to be on. Taking our focus off of the joy of the gospel, off of the redemptive work of Christ that we've received and putting it on things that are lesser. Putting it on things that try to rob us of our joy, try to rob us of the unity that we have under Christ. So I pray that as we prioritize our days and our weeks and our months ahead, we can always put him first. That each day we can wake up understanding the salvation that we've received, the redemptive work of our Lord and Savior, And when we understand that blessed hope for ourselves, that spills over into our families. And this is so vital and important for the men. As the spiritual leader of your home, if you're not having time with the Father, if you're not investing in your relationship with Him, that will spill over into your family, it will be dry. As the spiritual leader of your home, you have been called into a high calling. And if you are living out that blessed hope, if that is a priority in your life, it is seen and it is known by your wife and your children. As we lean in and as we press into the Father, and that spills over into our families, we understand that those are the top two priorities. Work and the other things should come after that. But too often, it is work that dictates what our priorities are. It is work that piles up and gets left over for the next day. How many times are we spending reading the Bible with our children and we're so involved with it But then we think, oh, well, we got to pick this up tomorrow because we're running out of time. I don't know that it's ever happened in my life. But how awesome would it be if that was our priority? Let's not shift from the hope of the gospel message. Let us abide and remain in him forever. Let's pray. Father, as we continue to come to your teaching, to your word, we are so grateful and thankful for Paul who was able to articulate these things and address different issues that were going on in his time. And Lord, just as there are always false things that are out there, I pray for discernment and wisdom. Um, But Lord, we need to be pressing into you to know what is false, to know Uh, what is not true according to your word. So I pray that you would help us make that a priority in our lives. Uh, Lord, even if it's for a season, taking one day at a time, Lord, your mercies are new and I'm grateful for that. Lord, I repent of those times where you have not been first. And I pray that you would help me to make those adjustments in my own life and I pray that for each of my brothers and sisters here. 
Lord, allow us to keep your gospel message and the heart of redemption to the forefront of our minds as a priority of what we do, what we, why we do what we do, why we come here to, to worship you, why we come to praise you. Lord, because it is true and it happened in the flesh. For as Paul says, if you did not die and were not resurrected, then we are the greatest of fools. And we would still be in our sins. But Lord, we, we praise you that it is true. We praise you that your blood has paid that price for us and that we have been redeemed, that we have peace with God and that we get to come and worship and praise you, exalting your name because what you have done through your son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Will you please stand for our last song?